Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 77 with Phil Rowley on Fishing Stillwaters. Hey everybody, just wanted to hop in quickly and make a quick announcement before the show. Um, we are rapidly approaching flyathlon season, and for those who aren't familiar with the flyathlon, it is a super fun race that happens a couple times each year, uh, and it's based around running, fishing, and drinking beer, which are three of my favorite things. Um, and if you'd like to hear more about the race, you can listen to episode one of the Fish Untamed podcast, where I interviewed Andrew Todd, the founder of the Flyathlon. Uh, but in addition to being a really fun weekend with a lot of fun people, uh, the Flyathlon is also a fundraiser uh, to raise money for native cutthroat trout conservation. So if you have a couple extra dollars that you would be interested in donating to a great cause to support native cutthroat trout, go ahead and head over to my website, fishuntamed.com, um, and you'll find a menu at the top called Flyathlon Fundraiser. That link should take you to the fundraiser and you can donate there. And any amount is greatly appreciated. Um, This would be a great way to support the show and also support uh, a wonderful cause for native trout. So that's all I've got for you, and we can get on with the show. I usually just like to start with a a background of my guests. So I just want to hear, like, how you got your start in uh, the outdoors and fishing in particular. Well, um, I guess it all started back when I was a young little tyke about four or five years old in England. And, um, I had a neighbor who took me fishing. My parents were gracious enough to let a, I guess I must've been about five or six go fishing with the neighbor's kid who was probably in his early teens. And we went uh, fishing at a local lake in, in a place called Sefton park. Cause I was born in Liverpool, England. So, and there you fished for carp and rudd and coarse fish. 
and you kept them uh, in a keep net, and then at the end of the day, you released them all. So kind of different that way. Um, and that sort of got fishing in the blood. And then when we emigrated to Canada, I lived in British Columbia for uh, in the town of Chilliwack, which is about an hour and a half, two hours east of Vancouver. And um, my father took me fishing, though ironically, my father was not into fishing at all. His passion was woodworking and cabinet work and those kind of things. That was his hobby. He couldn't quite, he, would, he spent uh, uh, a career in the Merchant Navy. And uh, I think he tried fishing a couple times in ports, but didn't, didn't, uh, didn't like it very much. Um, he remembered telling me a story about they were fishing with some leftovers off the ship in Durban, um, South Africa, and uh, we're just goofing around, throwing large chunks of meat and things over the side of the boat, and a big shark came up and ate it. So that's, he said that sort of put him off because he couldn't believe how big that fish was. Um, I think there's little great whites there swimming around, probably other things with lots of teeth. Um, yeah, so that started it, and throughout my childhood, um, I fished, and my father got employment over on Vancouver Island, um, again in British Columbia, around the Victoria area, and that's predominantly saltwater fishing. So I spent a lot of time. There was some local lakes you could fish for bluegills and catfish. Although BC is more of a trout fishing area, but Victoria is kind of a unique little climate um, that will support those other fish. It's got a really good smallmouth bass fishery around there too. Um, and I also fished from shore and docks. We used to go crabbing and shrimping off the public piers and and catch large sculpin and pile perch and you name it. We chased it. We used to. Um, row out in a little inflatable I somehow got a hold of out to these rocky outcroppings offshore that were encrusted in barnacles not a good place to beach a rubber yeah. raft <laughs> I can remember rowing back with uh, fingers stuck in a hole telling my friend to just row like crazy because it was <laughs> a, you know a, a delicate balance between sinking and moving um, but we would start out with buzz bombs and then uh, we would run out of those and then we'd have a a little plate of uh, Reese Davis anchovies that we would fish with those. And then we'd eventually run out of those. And then we'd take tinfoil and wrap it around hooks because we were fishing for um, rock cod, we call them, which is rock bass, actually, kind of a saltwater largemouth. Every once in a while, a, a coho salmon or a juvenile chinook or spring would come in. And that would scare us to death, but we all wanted to catch it. And then the odd lingcod would show up too. So basically, if it swam and ate, we were interested in it. And that sort of philosophy is carried over for me in fly fishing. If it swims and eats, I'll chase it with a fly. Yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah. What, what got you into fly fishing then? Because it sounds like this was mostly uh, conventional gear. Yeah, it was mostly conventional right up until, um, you know, I left home and, and uh, after school and, and uh, moved to Vancouver, bright lights and big city, you know, what young people do. Um and uh, I had a friend, I played uh, men's hockey, and um, he was always trying to get me out. He was a fly fisher, and I was always kind of brushing him off and whatever. And my wife and I, early in our marriage, so we would have been in my early 20s, um, we went on a camping trip and uh, were trolling and doing the conventional stuff and had a pretty frustrating week. Not, I think I'd caught one tiny little 12-inch trout that I'd only reason I knew I had it is I reeled in to change the lure and with the weight I had to have on to get it down. Um, I didn't even realize the poor guy was hooked. I've been dragging him around for a while. So I let him go. Um, but one evening uh, this gentleman came down as my wife and I looked back on it. It was a bit like watching Roderick Haig Brown come down. He had hip boots on and a wicker creel and a fly rod. And um, it's kind of surreal. 
And he waded in up to, you know, his knees and uh, where we were camped, the campground was at, a, at an outflow. It's a lake called Cameron Lake on Vancouver Island, noted for its brown trout and it had rainbows and cuts in it, I think. Um, anyway, we had been frustrated for a week and I watched him and probably an hour, hour and a half, if that, you know, catch his limit and hook and release a pile of others, all using fly fishing, um, you know, all fly fishing. So that I said, okay, I'm going to phone my friend up when I get back. I'd had it. I'd that there must be something to this. And uh, so made um, got a hold of Richard and he said, sure thing, and took me out, gave me some rudimentary casting lessons so I knew enough to be dangerous. And then I went with him and his father uh, to a river east of Vancouver called the Skagit River, which is a, a very popular but highly pressured uh, rainbow trout fishery um, there. And uh, I was fortunate enough to catch two trout on my first trip out on dries. I can't believe I actually got a drag-free drag free float long enough to actually entice a fish to come up and eat it. And I had never fought a fish like that before where there was nothing between the fish and myself. Um, you know, with, with conventional tackle as all the other bits and bobs that go on, this was just, you know, fish versus me and it just tore me up and it was only a, maybe a couple, maybe a couple of pounds. Um, and I was no pun intended, uh, hooked ever since. And I just fell right into fly fishing, um, right off the edge, and I've been falling in ever since. It's just totally encompassed my life at that point. That's all I wanted to do was learn more about this sport and, and catch as much, you know, learn as much as I could and, and just fly fish all the time, and it's just blossomed and grown from there. Yeah, isn't it crazy how it, it just kind of takes your life over once you've once you've gone in? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's ironic because sometimes my wife says, you know, do you ever read anything else other than fly fishing or fly fishing you know, about fly. No, <laughs> I'm always, what I love about it is there's always room to grow and improve. So that's my motto of, of my sort of my website and the things I do is, is because you never stop learning because you never do. Every day you go out, you see something you haven't seen before. You, you learn something, you observe something. And it's just, you know, compared to conventional fishing, I was all of a sudden there was this whole new world of how, ecosystems worked, how rivers and stream work, how lakes work, what was entomology that fascinated me um, as well. You know, all of a sudden there was this whole world. It wasn't just staring in water and weeds and logs. There was a whole uh, environment down there waiting to be discovered and it still carries on today. I think that's a, a big draw to fly fishing and, and not that conventional fishing doesn't involve, you nope. know, there's, there's still a lot of like oh, yeah, knowing fish is. behavior and everything, but um, the entomology specifically, I, I feel like a lot of, uh, when I used to just uh, fish on spin gear, I would just pick a lure and go and hope yep. for the best. And now it's very, it's much more of a strategic thing now where you have to yeah, kind of apply yeah, some observed. knowledge. <laughs> yeah. You're observing, you don't make a decision until you, you know, cause a lot of times I get asked by people, what's your favorite fly? The most, I don't know. It's not my favorite question because it's, you know, how long is a piece of string, right? It's just, right. there's Depends. no good answer for it. Um, and I don't like to go in with preconceived notions because you tend to make um, not information, not decisions based on the information at hand. It's on stuff you think or you thought might happen or what somebody worked last week. So you sort of can spend a lot of time um with an approach, a pattern, a presentation that's inappropriate, but you hang on to it for some reason because you didn't invest the 10 or 15 minutes to look around and snoop around and do a little detective work that'll save you a ton of frustration and time on the water. You know, my addiction with bugs, entomology, you know, that's, it's a big part of what I do. I, I approach the, my fishing and particularly still water fishing from a science-based 
sort of point of view, understanding, you know, all the invertebrates and things like that, you know, to the point for many years, I had a 30 gallon aquarium that I would keep um, still water bugs in and observe them and study them and photograph them and, and uh, learned a ton of things that, um, you know, I even surprised some entomologists with that they had never seen, but I would show them a picture or my observations. And, and um, you know, it was quite, it's a dog eat dog world down there. It makes Jurassic Park look like, uh, you know, it's, it's a small world in Disneyland, all happy <laughs> and cheery um, because it's, it's a rough and tumble world down there. Everything's eating some, eating each other. Right. So it's, it's a fascinating uh, way to learn about the sport and about fly fishing and about bugs. Tell me more about that. Like, did you just get a tank and um, go out and dig up some uh, rocks and put the bugs in? And did they did yeah, they proliferate or what, yeah, what was the setup? Well, I don't think they proliferated. They're all <laughs> kind of kill each other. Um, yeah, it's 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 tough to strike a balance. You know, basically, it's like any aquarium. You have to you know establish the the water chemistry. So you'd um, you know, I originally tried putting mud in, but eventually I just built it like a regular aquarium. And then tried to, you know, tried to get the plants established. Um, that was always hard. I used to end up buying, you know, actual aquarium plants. Like I remember getting, going in there and looking through all the plants, having somebody ask if they can help me. And I'm saying, do you have any plants that survive in like 50 to 60 Fahrenheit water? And they're all like, what kind of tropical, what kind of fish do you? And I tell them and, and I, you know, I was worried they might be embarrassed, but often or not, they said, oh, we always get these guys from the university. They're doing the same thing. And here's what we do. Right. So getting them established and then, then you'd, you know, dump in the bugs. You'd go collect them from a local body of water and um, and find out who played with who and who couldn't be in the tank. Like things like dragonfly nymphs, not a good thing to put into a tank. Um, I've got a story I've told many times, but I, in my 30-gallon aquarium one time, I put a immature dragonfly nymph in that was about an inch long in July. And by, and it was a pretty thriving aquarium. You never get them in balance. There's always something eating something. You got to replenish something. Um, and, um, I just noticed that the population was dropping and dropping and <laughs> dropping and dropping. And eventually that nymph came out, you know, because they, the, the particular dragonfly nymph, we nicknamed them darners. They're from the Anisha day family. They're, they're active predators. They, they stalk around like a cat. Um, they've got a, um, smaller, um, species, uh, the sprawlers, we call them that are kind of more squat and spider-like and like to just lay in the weeds and the rubble and their ambush feeders. They wait for food to come to them. So they're not nearly as destructive, but these darners were, you don't, you know, they're the, I swear, if you look on their bicep, the word mother is tattooed on there because <laughs> they are tough. They'll eat each other. Um, you know, just lethal down there. Anyway, long story short, by October 1st, this dragonfly nymph was now almost two and a half inches long and he had cleaned out or she had cleaned out everything in that tank with the exception of two leeches and it actually tried to eat one of those it was like watching an old tarzan movie where he's fighting a snake and it's all wrapped around him um yeah just a a, a bug that does not play with others <laughs> that's crazy well at least yeah. you know uh you know that one doesn't play well with others who yeah. else who who uh in general were the predators and who were the prey like did did a couple groups really stand out as uh yeah well you over? have your you, you know your, your popular predators are your dragonfly nymphs and damselfly nymphs although damselflies are smaller um you know more svelte so they probably don't have the same you know done don't grow to the same size so they don't have that same appetite they were a little more easier to keep in check um, and the next ones that were, were freshwater shrimp or, you know, or properly called scuds, um, they're omnivorous and they would, you know, one day they're eating 
vegetation. And the next day I'd watch a group of four or five of them um, attack a damselfly nymph and shred it like a pack of piranhas. So yeah, they were the probably next to the dragonfly nymphs, the scuds were the worst thing because they just attacked on mass and were kind of moody with their behavior. You never know whether they were in meat or ve- meat or veggie mode. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So you're always replenishing. You're always, okay, I'm low on these. And, and, you know, things like uh, mayfly nymphs, particularly calabatus um, swimming nymph common to many Western still waters. They were tough because they're external gills. They're, you know, they're, they're very susceptible. If, if water temperatures weren't right and water chemistry was wrong. And I, I remember one time I decided I needed pictures of them. So I set up a little smaller 10 gallon aquarium, dropped, you know, collected them, kept them in this uh, little thermos I'd had. I commandeered, put a bubbler in there, made sure they were well oxygenated so they could get home, dumped them in. I, I got some weeds from their environment and shook them out to make sure what I thought nobody was in there. Cause that was a lot of times how you got uh, one time I got a water scorpion, uh, in there, which is like an underwater, not like it's looks, it's not, it doesn't look the same, but envision it's sort of a, you know, uh, not too distant, rel- not relative, but looks has similar behaviors to a praying mantis, right? And they look like a stick, but they've got these big sort of praying mantis arms and their big long nose that they, they, you know, um, drink their, um, their victims from the inside <laughs> out. Yeah. Not a nice metal. Um, so, you know, things like that would accidentally get into the into the hen house, so to speak, which is not a good thing. So anyway, um, I got these uh, calabatus nymphs in this aquarium and there's lots of them and it's going well and I'm getting my pictures and every day there's less and less and less, right? It's not like all of a sudden it doesn't seem as busy as it was the day before. And, you know, I'm looking around because at this time I was living in a more temperate climate to where I'm living now. So I, I had them in the garage. That was far as my wife would let them in the house because she I had you know, damselfly hatches in February. And, you know, I had house spiders like tarantulas, I think, in the garage um, because all the flying food I would provide for them. Um, but there was no signs of hatch. There was no duns flying around. There was no shucks on the surface. And, and I remember one day I'm just staring, looking at this, trying to figure it out, just sort of staring at the at the weeds and the bugs. And all of a sudden something moved in the weeds. And it was like one of those um, optical illusions. You know, do you see it one way or do you see it another and as soon as I saw the movement, I saw what created the movement, which was these sprawler dragonfly nymphs. And I saw one of them that was about the size of a nickel. Um, and then once I saw one, I saw the other 15 I had and because I had brought them in with the weeds. So they're just thinking this is great. You know, I supplied them a lifetime supply of, of um, calabatus nymphs to chew on. <laughs> so, yeah, it was always a uh, always a balancing act trying to... And, balance was probably a word that never really happened but to get it all sorted out and you know try and get as many pitches as you could and observe what you could before everything ate each other yeah it <laughs> sounds super cool again. yeah it was it was fascinating it was fast i recommend anybody like studying um you know i'm um good friends with uh, rick hayfley um who's a re- retired aquatic entomologist he wrote the book western hatches with dave hughes western mayfly hatches um number of great books and uh He's sort of my little, um, he, he vetted my, the entomology section of my first book, Fly Patterns for Still Waters, and my most recent book, um, The Orvis Guide to Stillwater Fly Fishing. So him and I get into some great um, bug discussions that are probably way, he actually pulls me out of the weeds because I'll go way in on certain things. 
And, you know, Rick being an entomologist and fly fisher is just a perfect combination. So we were fish. I was at the good fortune to fish with him and Dave Hughes on the Missouri a number of years ago. And Rick and I were spending more time seining runs and counting bugs and looking at all this crazy stuff. And I remember Dave sort of knee deep swinging a caddis pupa or something, looking at us too, like we were just out of our minds, right? You know, there's fishing to be done. I said, well, look at all these bugs. These are fascinating. Look at them all. Look at all these betas nymphs. Oh my. <laughs> you know, and you could just see on the Missouri, a betas nymph is a pretty good thing to, to imitate because it's a bazillion of them. So yeah, fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. This is a good example of one of those, uh, like, kind of side tangents to fly fishing that you can that's that's its own rabbit hole kind of like fly time there's people who tie flies that don't even fish anymore yeah and i feel like there's people who are at this point more interested in the bugs than they are in the fish yeah i'm all of it i love the you know fly tying i never thought i you know when i started um i never tied flies i you know you just sort of bought them and stole them and borrowed them (laughs) you could get a hold of them right and then all of a sudden you took a fly tying class and it was that was another addiction that started and and for me and and where i've you know, sort of professionally developed, that's it. Fly tying was my entry in because I started tying commercially, um, had delusions that you could actually earn a living doing it, which, you know, you can't, I couldn't, um, you know, it just became so onerous, you know, you didn't enjoy it anymore because you had to knock off so many dozen a day just to stay in touch. You'd dump them off at the store, watch some guy buy, you drop two dozen in the bin, he'd buy a dozen of them. And I'm like, go buy stronger tippet. You need stronger tippet because one fly will last you if you don't break it off. Um, that kind of stuff. But that, and then I started doing um, teaching fly tying classes and and doing tying demonstrations, and then that expanded into from there into seminars and you know to where I sort of am today. Fly tying was the catalyst for that. Um, and then photography is another rabbit hole you go down with this sport because you want to record where you are. You want to take memorable pictures of that fish or in the case with me with entomology it was macro photography and getting into that. So I have just as much fun fishing sometimes, or when I'm guiding people say, how can you guide people? Or how can you sit there in a boat and just watch somebody else fish all day? Cause I've got a camera with me and I can, you know, record that. And I just, I get a big kick out of watching other people learn and be successful and, and hopefully get addicted to the sport like we are. I, I have to say it's, uh, one of my favorite things, if if I'm not the one fishing, is if you are watching somebody else fish and you can see the fish and they can't, that is such a, an exciting partnership where someone's casting to a fish that you can see and you're kind of trying to direct them. And, you know, it, it's almost a team effort at that point um, yeah. where you feel successful just being a part of that. Well, yeah, because a lot of times, you know, especially if you've got people that, you know, don't have um, the same experience, you're trying to help them along. And of course, if they're struggling and, and, and not you know, you've got to help them and you've got to figure out the problems. And sometimes you get thrown a problem that's like, wow, I've never seen this one before, (laughs) but you've got to stay calm and cool because you're like, you know, I've got to figure this out. Probably the most memorable one of that. I was, when I used to do schools in rural Manitoba in the Southwest, they used to have some incredible trout fishing there. And we were fishing chironomids under indicators, midges. And um, I had one gentleman that was catching you know, every 10 or 15 minutes. And another gentleman was over an hour and hadn't touched anything. And, you know, when the way these, their indicators were positioned, they were no more than five or six feet apart. And I really don't believe there's a, a special little fairy up there anointing somebody um, to be successful. Um, so there's a reason for everything. So, you know, we go through all the usual, what fly, what size, what depth, and everything seemed to be um, as it, as it should be, but wasn't catching fish. And it wasn't until a gentleman who wasn't catching fish 
asked me to put the two indicators together and, and then stroke them from the indicator to the fly to see if his fly was at the same depth that I realized his leader setup was a little different. He was using a standard tapered leader. And when you indicator fish in lakes, you want to make sure that the leader between your indicator and fly is completely level. So the basically the leader sinks vertically. If you have a tapered leader on with differing thickness along it, it's going to sort of, because thicker stuff sinks slower than thin stuff, it kind of sinks in an arc. And that was robbing him maybe of six inches, maybe. And, but that was the difference because trout and lakes, you know, chronomids are the number one food source in a productive lake. And they're like easy to eat. They're small, they're rich in calories, but a fish isn't going to chase one all over the place. They get, the more bugs that are in the water, the more pupa that are suspending, the more, the narrower their feeding zone becomes. And they just won't move very far. They'll just kind of swim in a level and kind of turn their head left and right and just open their mouth and inhale and move on to the next one. So as soon as we change them up to the same leader system, boom, he was into fish and went toe to toe for the rest of the day. Right. And it was that little I'm in the middle going, I got to figure this out. Right. <laughs> so that's, and a lot of times people go, Oh, it can't be that. I, you know, I've had, you know, similar, I've had that issue appear two or three times um, with other guests and friends of mine and they just blow it. Oh, it can't be that. Right. And I'm like, whatever. Right. <laughs> so uh, yeah. But, uh, and then they finally reluctantly make a change and they catch a fish. It's like, well, there you go. I, I told you, I don't make, I stole one friend, you know, I don't make this stuff up to put in slides in a presentation. I said, there's actually, you know, I come from the school of hard knocks. So, you know, it took me a while to figure, you know, why is that guy catching all the fish and I'm not? And you, you know, everybody, it's always the fly's fault, right? It's always the fly. And it's, it's the presentation 98% of the time, I bet, um, you know, the fly just takes it on the chin all the time because the only reason if you're not catching fish, if it's the fly is the angler. And most people don't like to come to terms with that <laughs> sort of self-realization that they may be the problem. So, and I've known long ago, I've been a problem many times. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm, I'm used to it. So. Yeah. It's crazy how much such a little difference like that can make you, in my mind, I would assume that, you know, fish are, fish are trying to get by. Like they, they're taking in yep. such small food sources that you'd think that they would, you know, take whatever opportunity they're given. And then you have these situations where changing a couple inches of depth. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, I, you know, I, I have to imagine that fish could see that. Um, and you'd think that it would want to take that opportunity, but so often it's a matter of a couple inches and that completely turns your day around. And yeah. it's, it's just crazy. Well, and it's, it's, you know, the analogy I use is a human and we always try to put human, how we interpret problems and right? assume fish <laughs> problem solve the same way. And they're, you know, let's, face it, they're thankfully not that smart, right? If they, if, if we gave them the intelligence, if they had the intelligence we perceive they do by some of their behaviors, we'd never catch them, right? They're, you know, we're not dealing with Stephen Hawking kind of intelligence with these <laughs> things, but they're driven by instinct and just reflex. And, you know, I, I, I often joke, you know, if you put, if Oprah Winfrey still had her show on television and she interviewed a trout, she would ask it, you know, why, you know, especially stillwater trout, why are you so affected by weather change? The trout would go, I don't know, just am, <laughs> right? I don't know. <laughs> Never thought about it, right? Whereas we're just uh, analyzing, you know, an analysis to the point of paralysis, right? We can't make decisions sometimes. And, you know, some, that's the fun. Again, that's the fun of it too, because we'll probably, none of us are ever going to be a fish unless reincarnation is real. Different night, different subject. <laughs> um, we uh, will never know. And that's part of the fun of it, right? You just, 
you know, you do your best out there and experience and time on the water and, and talking amongst yourselves and problem solving. And, and again, back to that learning, go back home, study, get on the internet, grab a book, ask questions and try to make deductions and see if those deductions the next time you're out hold some weight. If not, tweak them a little bit and it just keeps going and going and going. I don't fish the same way five years ago I did now. I'm always changing and evolving, right? Well, it makes it more satisfying when you figure it out too. Because, yeah. you know, if you if you try five things and six thing works, then, you know, you you know that you've come to that. You weren't just lucky. You've, you've come to that point uh, from trial and error. Well, I think sometimes, i got to be careful what I say, but sometimes people's egos can get in the way, right? Their own, and I'm, you know, I've learned things from raw beginners. They've been out there. How'd you do? Oh, I caught this and this. I had 20 fish and, you know, gladly show me what they were doing. And, and they may not have the experience or the understanding yet to, ex- to, you know, dissect what they did. But I'm fortunate a little bit after close to 40 years of doing this that I can and go, okay. And I don't forget, right? I, you never know where your next source of information is going to come from. So you can't, you can't just sort of say, well, they're new to fly fishing. So how could they, you'd be surprised how much you can learn from, because to me, a beginner has no biases, no pre, they just react and do um, based on what they thought was right at the time. And a lot of times it is, and they may not know why, but you can help them understand, or it's a great learning experience. They go, wow, I'm going to start doing that now. Cause sometimes I think as we get more experienced and we get, we tend to complicate the heck out of everything. Right. Um, yeah. Especially when what you think should be working isn't. I feel like yeah. uh, there's times I go out and I expect a hatch of a certain type. And then when that's not happening, I almost feel lost. Like, well, now what do I do? Um, whereas I might've been better off had I just not even considered that and just picked something and tried it. And I feel yeah. like that's what you're talking about with the beginners. You know, sometimes they pick the right thing. That's not what you'd expect. But if, if you go in only having like plan A and plan A doesn't work, then, then what do you do? <laughs> you know, you've got to, yeah. you've got to start to think outside the box to find out, you know, maybe they're not behaving the way you expected. Um, and you might not know why, but you've got to at least get to that point to figure it out. Yeah. You just try it. What do you got? You, you're not catching anything now. So give 15 minutes <laughs> of a new worse. theory in charge and see how it goes. Um, yeah, because it's, again, that's, that's just the fun of it all, right? It just keeps you, you're, you know, people, <laughs> I joke when sometimes I do seminars or, you know, say something and say, wow, that's pretty prophetic. I'm like, where do you come up with this stuff? And I just say it's stuff or a word that starts with S for stuff. <laughs> um, stuff that I think about while staring at an indicator, right? Because I'm, you know, sometimes I think with indicator fishing, people think it's, oh, it's kind of brain dead. You just put this float on and wait till it pulls under. And the it's not like that at all. It's arguably my indicator leader system is the most complex leader system I use in Stillwaters. Um, it's very, it's, you know, if you want to be consistently good at it, you've got, it's a bunch of little innocuous things that add up to being successful or not, you know, and it, it's back to that example of leader construction. You know, you wouldn't think that a leader diameter would make that much difference, but in that situation, it did. Um, so it, it's all that stuff. You're always thinking why things are happening. Like, why am I having a good day? Um, why am I doing this? What's going on? I'm always observing. My ears are always listening for the sounds of moving fish, watching what other anglers are doing, um, all that kind of stuff. This might be a, a good time to switch over to talking about sure. still waters um, specifically. And I, I wanted to start off by asking, like, what, what got you so into still waters? Because you're kind of known as one of the still water guys. Um, yeah. Um, well, growing up in British Columbia, and when I really got into it, 
um, you know, BC has lots of great fly fishing opportunities in it. You know, in the southeast corner of the province, it's got some wonderful river and stream fisheries for bull trout, cutthroat, rainbows. Um, but that was a bit of a haul um, drive-wise. Um, it had anadromous fishing too. We, you know, living in the lower mainland, we, every spring we got runs of uh, um, fish back, um, you know, salmon, all five species of Pacific salmon, steelhead. Um, but they were seasonal. And then the really good steelhead fishing was up in the Skeena River area, which was a significant drive from there. Um, and the interior of the province had a rich history of stillwater fishing. You know, there's over 20,000 lakes in British Columbia. Where I'm living now is about 600, so a little different, you know, the way the, the earth formed. And that, um, you know, basically down North America, either side of the Rockies um, is just the perfect conditions for some world-class um, stillwater fishing. So it was just readily available, easy to get to. Um, you know, at that time when I started out, I'd purchased a float tube. So it was something I could throw in the trunk of a car. I could blow it up with a cigarette lighter driven pump, um, you know, and I was fishing, um, you know, whereas all the other stuff. And I just fell in love with it. I just like, you know, it's a like most fly fishing opportunities. It's a huge puzzle. Um, lakes you know, a lot of people are intimidated by lakes because they're large, they're featureless. They're not like a river that you can, you know, see the other side, wade across. You could see, you know, areas, likely looking areas. If I was a fish and trying to rest, I would sit there. I wouldn't sit in that raging current necessarily. Um, all those kind of things. Whereas a lake is like, wow, it all looks the same. It's deep in spots. Um, but it's, once you figure it out, it's, they're actually not that, you know, not that challenging to read, right? So I wanted to clarify, um, just because I'm not sure what the lakes around you are like, uh, at least where I am in Colorado, most of the lakes, apart from the handful down here in Denver that are more warm water species, uh, most of our trout lakes are, are high alpine lakes, you know, uh, 9,000 plus feet all the way up to, you know, 12, 13,000 feet. Um, is that the type of lake, the like still water that you're no, usually fishing? We're or is more it... lower. Okay. Lower. We, have a, we have high elevation lakes too, because we, we share the same Rockies, right? right? They go right up the continent. Um, so we have a high alpine lakes there with, you know, that have been, some have been stocked with brook trout. A lot of them have, uh, you know, Alberta where I am, the native species is cutthroat. Some have golden trout in them as well. Those aren't as productive. They have a short growing season. Um, but you're bet, you're, you know, the, the productive lakes I'm talking about, if you think about the interior of British Columbia, your average elevation, anywhere from three to 5,000 feet. Um, and just the way the lay of the land is, the lakes, a lot of them are landlocked or have seasonal or what they call ephemeral streams. So the, all the nutrients that get washed into the lake stay there. And what, because the lake, the water doesn't change or flush um, like a coastal lake does, it has high amounts of rainfall, an inflow river, an outflow river that just takes you know, the minerals, the, the, the nutrients don't have times to settle. And of course, when they settle, um, they create a rich fertile base for plants to grow in and plants provide habitat for food and the whole circle of life food chain gets going right. Um, your Colorado lakes have them down the lower elevations, lakes like Ontario and Spinney, um, you know, reservoirs, perhaps not as much, you know, there's some very productive reservoirs, but they are subject to, you know, drawdown. So that can impact because the shallows are the first things to, to draw down. And that's where all, you know, that's where food tends to live. Most of your trout food is in water 20 feet deep or less. Um, because of the sunlight penetration, photosynthesis, stimulating plant growth, all that kind of stuff. So um, those lakes in the interior of British Columbia, uh, in Alberta, where I am, um, Montana, Idaho, Colorado, uh, Eastern California, um, the Sierras, California, Nevada with Pyramid Lake, 
that's a little different. That's a very alkaline fishery. Um, um, yeah, there's just Oregon, Washington State, Eastern Washington. You know, I fished. I've had the good fortune to fish all into Arizona. Um, you know, and I, I also fish into Eastern Canada and Eastern United States too. And those are a little different. Those are particularly the, the lakes in Eastern Canada are more shield lakes. They're, they sit on a rock base. Um, so they're not as productive. So you just got to change your strategies a little bit and, and, uh, those kind of things. But that's why, again, just BC, I was just in the perfect place to, to learn about stillwater fishing. Right? Okay. Um, good to know. Cause I wasn't sure. I, I feel like stillwater is often used, um, kind of across the board and there's so many, I almost feel like there's more difference in, in lakes than there is in oh, rivers. There are. I, you could argue no two lakes are the same. Yeah. They, they have common, it's like trout. I, I firmly believe fish have personalities too. You have really aggressive ones, moderately aggressive, slightly aggressive. They're all aggressive because they're predators, but they all, you know, I remember what I'm going off topic here. I remember one time hanging something under an indicator in clear Lake, watching one fish swim by it. Like it didn't exist. Another fish swam by it, circled it once and then, and then the third one came in not even a minute later and hit it on a dead run, right? So you got three fish with three totally different responses, you know. So lakes are, you know, to use that analogy, they're all a little different. You know, you've got lakes that are really productive. We call those eutrophic lakes. I call them, think euphoria. That's the analogy, you know, sort of the, what is that technique where you use word associations? Anyway, um, and then you've got a medium level of productivity called mesotrophic and then you've got your really low productivity lakes, oligotrophic. Um, and those are the ones typically you'll see on, in, on the, I saw on the West coast of British Columbia. So deep, you know, you could be cut sometimes a rod length from shore and you're in 45 feet of water, right? That's not a lot of place to grow, to grow plants. So fish right. in there are constantly starving, <laughs> poor thing. <laughs> Um, so how, let's let's talk about how you approach a lake because you already mentioned this that it, it's a little overwhelming to people sometimes because you don't have these obvious features. I know there's some lakes that do have some features, but f- for the most part, if you walk up to a lake, it, it almost looks like just a big bathtub. Um, and yep. unless it happens to have a really prominent shelf or some big boulders around the edge, it's it's kind of just like, well, now what? So when yeah. you when you walk up to a lake that you haven't been to before, um, how are you going about finding out where the fish might be hanging out? Well, actually, it starts at home. I actually have a presentation I call this, How to Approach a New Lake, and it starts at home. Um, you can do a lot of research at home. Um, you know, obviously, just like any fishery, you can't beat local knowledge. So if you can find out information from friends who've been there before, a local fly shop, uh, internet forums, now Facebook groups, um, Google searches, you know, and then you look at Google Maps, Google Earth. Um, you know, we're again, if you think about as fly fishers in lakes, I, I believe we're most productive in, in water 20 feet deep or less. And again, that's for two reasons. First of all, like the one I mentioned, because of sunlight penetration, its influence on weed growth and habitat for bugs. And um, But it's also from a presentation perspective, in water 20 feet deep or less, I can do lots. I have lots of tools at my disposal. I can fish indicators. I can fish slow sinking lines, intermediate lines. I can you fish fast sinking lines. I can do all kinds of different things, different techniques. Whereas you get out into deep water, there's not a lot of food that lives out there. Um, fish will spend periodic times out there. It's sort of their timeout room. I call it where they go and they're not terribly happy or things aren't in their favor. They'll, or water, te- you know, there's water chemistry issues, water temperature issues. It'll drive them out there too. Um, it's still a productive area, the upper part that gets influenced by the sun, but your presentation options drop and you're dealing with depth. And so, Anyway, so you're trying to identify, take that lake and using those resources at home, 
uh, and bathymetric maps. If you can get hold of an underwater contour map, then you get this sort of 20,000 foot view of where, and you're looking for things like I'm a, I love fishing drop-offs. That transition from the shallow or shoal areas to deep water, fish use that like a game trail. They'll cruise along the edge of that. They can zip in on the shoal and have a few bites to eat. If something spooks them, the security of deep water is nearby. Um, so that's a favorite spot of mine. Points of land because of that, you know, they have drop-offs around their edges, sunken up weed beds, that kind of stuff. So you're trying to use that bathymetric map, Google Maps, because some and Google Earth, because sometimes you can drill right down and see um, structure. So that's all done. So I have this kind of mental picture of, and of course, making sure your equipment's all good to go, because if you're battling your equipment all day because you forgot something or didn't whatever, then you're not focused on, you know, you're too busy upset with yourself because you forgot your nippers, you ran out of tippet, uh, you left that fly box at home, those kind of things, you brought the wrong rod, uh, all that stuff. That just, that kind of stuff just, I don't know about you, but it way, it sort of gnaws yeah. at you all day long, right? It just gets you not focused. So then I get to the lakeshore and then that's where you invest that 10, 15 minutes. Um, you know, you get yourself ready, of course, and then go walk the shoreline and, and, and um, look for signs of what might be going on. Turn over rocks and logs along the shoreline. See what's living under them. Um, how big is it? What color is it? You don't necessarily have to have a degree in aquatic entomology, but it's good to know what a mayfly is and what a dragonfly is. Um, you know, some insects like dragonflies and damselflies crawl out of the water to emerge. So you'll see their shucks on the weed, on the vegetation and logs. So you're looking for signs of hatch. You'll see shucks that are drifted in. If there's been a wind activity, it creates foam that's white. It's got good contrast. It gathers things. So you're looking for all this kind of stuff. And then you can sort of say, okay, I got my bathymetric map. I can sort of orientate it and say, okay, that's over there. And that's there. And I'm looking at the surrounding topography, right? If there's a gentle slope into the lake, that's going to carry under the water as well, that's going to be a shallow area that there could be some weed beds, whereas a stiff um, vertical drop into the lake is probably more indicative of deep water and you may want to sort of stay away from there, right? Um, so you've got that. And, and, and from home, I've kind of built a route map looking at, okay, I want to go to that drop off. I want to go here. I want to go here and I'll work my way around. Um, but when I'm moving around, I'm also constantly looking for moving fish, right? We, we jokingly call it the two fish rule. If we see a fish move in an area once, we pay attention twice, go see what's going on because active fish, they may not be feeding. They could be just their, you know, their cruising patterns broke the surface, whatever they're active. And I always joke, if there's at least, you know, there's a fish. There right. That's the first step. In, in, you know, <laughs> although fish in lakes, people got to remember like rivers, the water moves and the fish doesn't lakes, the water moves, but not like a river you know, wind-induced current, those kind of things. But for the most part, the water doesn't move and the fish move. They're cruising, right? So they don't hang out in haunt, you know, largemouth bass would. Um, but trout, what we're talking about here are cruisers, right? So they may, you know, have somebody, you always got to go by that point. There's a big brown that lives there. He doesn't really live there. He cruises by on a regular basis, right? It's part of his, you know, you imagine a, a, a mountain lion or a pack of wolves, they cruise a territory and, and trout are no different. Um, so they'll cruise around. So you're looking for those things. If I see birds working low to the surface, like swallows, uh, terns, nighthawks, um, those kind of birds that feed on insects, you know, if they're concentrated in one area, because your hatch is like any, like on a river, they could only be occurring in this pool or that run or that riffle. Um, same thing. So you see those birds working like helicopter gunships low to the water. Um, that's a sign there's probably some bugs coming off. And, and just like the ocean going angler uses seagulls to find bait balls 
we're kind of finding bug balls, I guess. Uh, so um, we're using that to, to locate fish as well, right? So, and then finally, I'm looking for three factors, much like river and stream fishing. So comfort, protection, and food. So comfort to me are the, are, of those three, I'd probably say in my reference are the most important because that's the needs, the trout needs to survive, to function, its metabolism, um, and primarily oxygen content. So that's why water temperature is so important. Um, trout have, you know, compared to other fish, a pretty narrow range. I'm looking for about 50 Fahrenheit to 65. That when the water temperature is in there, and it's not about whether the trout are cold or warm, they're cold-blooded, it's about oxygen. The, the warmer water gets, the less oxygen it holds. And a fish function with the oxygen content in that 50 to 65 range, when it starts exceeding that, they get stressed and they won't eat, right? And if you do catch them, you run the risk of, you know, killing them. Um, so you're looking for that kind of water. So comfort, weeds give off through photosynthesis, weeds give off oxygen. That's part of the byproducts of photosynthesis. Um, you know, weather systems, trout and lakes are, are susceptible to weather change. There's lots of conjecture why. I think as humans, we always look for the one thing and it's usually a probably about 12 things <laughs> that are going on that, you know, we only realize six of them. But I always say this, like the world's a, a snow globe and mother nature just gave it a really good shake. And while that weather transitions going on, it, it kind of puts them off. So they'll slide off deeper. They won't be as active. You've got to slow your presentations, presentations down, maybe go work that deep water adjacent to a drop off, that kind of thing. The next thing is protection. Just like rivers, trout like to feel secure when they feed. So in lakes, that's about light levels. You know, a fish is not going to come into the shallows or is going to be very cautious in a shallow, clear environment. Um, a little bit of surface disturbance caused by wind um, works like a riffle on a river. It breaks up light. It masks the presence. It masks our presence. Um, wind, actually, most people hate it, is actually, a. I view it as a friend. Unfortunately, um, it's a bit like a puppy. Uh, it can't come over in a nice, controlled, balanced fashion. It's got to come roaring in, jump up on you, bite you, nip you, you know, all that kind of stuff. And after spending three trips down to Argentina and fishing Lago Strobel, where, you know, a 30 mile an hour day is a calm day, um, it's you you have to learn to accept wind and use it to your advantage. So protection or things like that, adjacency to deep water, um, those are things. So those drop-offs, those points of land, sunken islands with deep water refuge around them. And of course, the final thing is food. You find the food, you, you'll find the predators, right? So it's weed, again, back to weed beds. Um, that's the Walmart, Costco, <laughs> Safeway of the underwater world. That's where, you know, if you wanted to, if you were feeding on humans, <laughs> bad analogy coming up, and you were a predator hanging out in a super a, a, shop, a supermarket parking lot probably be a good hunting ground right because right? we're always going in there to get stuff we can jump us in the parking lot um you know um i'm full of these crazy metaphors so <laughs> um so uh that th those are the three things and you find all three of those things in one spot that's a prime lie so in still waters that would be a weed bed right adjacent to a drop-off or a point with a weedy point weed bed underneath of it something like that where they've got the protection of the weeds the oxygen the weeds generate um, you know, when they're living and growing, maybe not so much in the late fall when they're dying off, because um, then they're consuming oxygen. Um, food lives there. They've got the security of deep water nearby. So again, you're just trying to take this lake and break it into bite-sized chunks and focus on the chunks, right? Don't get, it's no different than fishing. You know, I've steelhead fishes some huge rivers, right? 
or even just trout fish big water. And it's like, wow, that's a lot of water. And you just got to break it into, you know, that's that little spot's a riffle, right? I'm just going to fish it like I would fish a riffle on a stream that's 10 feet wide and just focus on that, right? And, you know, don't get overwhelmed by the size of it all. Yeah, it's almost almost in the same way that, I mean, when you look at a river, it's, what you know, where's the fish most likely to be? Um, the difference is just that a river, it's it's often very obvious, but it seems like it's the same process. It's just not as clear um, when you first look at it. Um, you kind of yeah. have to put the pieces together and say, okay, what adds up to good trout habitat versus, well, there's a huge rock right there surrounded by fast current. So, you know, if I were a fish, I would hang out. In, sure, in that I'd area. hang out there. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, if you wanted to not get run over, don't stand in the middle of the highway, <laughs> pull over and stand on the shoulder or stand behind a parked car and get out of the traffic a exactly. little bit, right? Yeah. So, um, again, more bad metaphors <laughs> and analogies, but, um, yeah, um, very important. And once you get, and, you know, make notes every time I'm on the water, um, you know, I used to write them down. Now you got smartphones, you can just type notes in and things like that. And now instead of drawing, you know, you catch a bug or something or see something, instead of trying to draw it and figure out what color it was you can just take out your smartphone and take, take a picture, picture of yeah. it i don't know what some people bemoan phones i'm like god they're everything your <laughs> google maps is on there um all these kind of it's almost like if the thing rings like my two sons if it rings i joke sometimes they think it's broken right because they just text and all that stuff it's like you know you phone them you don't get any answer two seconds later you get a text would <laughs> um so <laughs> they're not really but you know they that's the way they they go right so yeah, it's, it's an invaluable tool. Taking those notes, because you'll find the notes you take on one lake and you get to another new body of water, there's a lot of overlap. Oh, I've seen this before. I've seen this. I know this. I've seen that bug. I've seen this behavior, right? And you start building on it. And it just builds confidence on it, right? So, so yeah, that's sort of my Reader's Digest tour of how I approach a new <laughs> lake. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I wanted to ask you, uh, regarding wind um, on still waters, I generally have a favorable view of, like you said, kind of a, if you can get the not crazy puppy wind and kind of get something yeah. a little bit more consistent. <laughs> um, if you've got an indicator rig, I know, you know, that kind of stirs up, you, you might give your fly some movement under the water, um, but I haven't had a ton of luck in the wind with dry flies. Have you found that um, you can catch fish on dry flies in the wind or does it kind of turn um, them off for you? Sometimes, for the most part... You definitely get better in a light wind or flat calms. Uh, part of me, I believe the fish see their prey easier. The water, the surface isn't broken up. It's not diffusing light. It's not masking their target. I don't think their target acquisition systems work so well in the chop. Um, but that said, you know, sometimes if they're eating, you know, the bigger the wave, the bigger the fly is generally the rule we go. Um, 
you know, maybe they're eating size 14s, but you can coax them to a 10 um, because it's big. Um, they see it better. Mm-hmm. You see it better. Um, you know, some, you know, in Argentina, even though there's Lagostrobal, the primary food source for those fish in there, are scuds, snails, and zooplankton, um, there's no discernible feeding on anything else. They'll eat a mouse pattern. There are mice around. I'm sure they get in the water. You know, and those fish are averaging 15 pounds, so they don't pass up much. Um, picky, you know, you don't, they're not like humans. When we get big, we're all like cutting calories and getting exercise and, you know, getting back to our goal weight and all that stuff. They're just trying to eat more and more and more. Right. So, you know, we're fishing chubby Chernobyls and stripping them to make a wake. So sometimes we, we, you know, a lot of times in lakes, I think people with dries think, oh, just let it sit still, um, move them. Um, retrieve them, make a wake, draw something. You know, we get big caddis. We don't have the caddis um, and mayfly populations that river and stream anglers do, but we get, particularly with uh, caddis, we get some big ones. We call them traveling sedges or sometimes in, in certain areas of states, I've heard them referred to as motorboat caddis because, you know, they're like golden stone size. So when they run and scurry, they create a, you know, a, a wake that a fish can find and explode on so we do that a lot of times when we're dry fly fishing lakes too we just don't pitch it out there and and wait for all eternity for a fish to find it typically we're fan casting so we're, we're constantly spraying casts around us in, in kind of an arc um i was using analogy like a clock face anywhere from about 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock 2 30 9 30 whatever um and just let the flies land and as soon as they hit usually you're going to get a response within 10 or 15 seconds um, because I think the splat pulls them over, you know, it lands delicately, you know, it'll pile drive it in there um, and they come over and investigate and take it. And then you pick up and lay it down again. Of course, if fish rises, you cover it, um, those kind of things. And I actually fish dries in lakes sometimes with a midge tip line and a midge tip line is a floating line. Um, the, the original midge tip featured a 39 inch, three foot, you know, a meter long, 39 inch um, clear intermediate tip. And so people go, why would you fish lines with a sink tip? That just doesn't make sense. Well, a lot of our flies in lakes, dry flies, particularly if you look at some of the English style dries, they're not like a, a traditional Adams or a Catskill dry that's sitting up proud on the hackle because all the currents, the insects kind of got to be up a little bit. In lakes, they sit quite low. And of course, a lot of times they're not actually taking the adults. They're feeding on, you know, cripples and, and emergers and those kind of things because that's easy prey. Um, bigger silhouette, all those reasons. Um, so our, it's not on, so the flies we use, you know, some of the English flies are literally a dubbed body with a, you know, a relatively inexpensive hackle in the front. They're like a, well, more like a wet fly than a dry. So with this midge tip, you cast them out, you dress them up, they sit there for a bit. Eventually, you know, that midge tip will pull the flies under. And the second they go under, you just start a slow hand twist retrieve and track those flies back just underneath the surface and that's the zone where the fish, the fish are coming up. They're rising. They're dropping down a foot or two to window of vision stuff to see a little better. Probably some predator avoidance in there, that kind of thing, safety. And then come up to feed again. So you're just tracking those flies through a zone they're feeding on and they'll take them, right? Quite often the retrieve fly will get, that subsurface fly will get more action than the dry. So it's a great two-for-one presentation um, that you can do. Um, there's another technique called the washing line that we use, which is a buoyant fly on the point. Um, you can use it at the surface. You can use it at depth. Um, and basically the, the buoyant fly in conjunction with your fly line um, holds other flies off droppers. If you're in an area where you're allowed to use droppers, like clothes on a washing line. So you can have a fly, you know, there's a 
popular fly now on lakes called the booby with big round foam eyeballs. When you retrieve that at the surface, it creates a wake. So trout will come up and look at that and they might eat it um, or they'll, you know, be attracted to it and then um, look around and see your other more natural offerings hang in there and take one of those too. So um, just some of the, the tactics are a little different and, and we use wind as well. Um, we will, you know, trout like to, you know, tr trout and lakes are, you know, it's in their DNA, their river and stream fish in their DNA, rainbows, browns, rookies, all that. They're put in lakes or found their way into lakes. And so they like current and any wind induced current they'll swim into, right? So a lot of times they'll swim upwind. So you see a fish rise. My first cast would be, at, you know, upwind of that position because that's most likely where that fish is going to be. Because the thing with the rise, it's telling you where it was, not where it is. Um, so you got to learn to little tricks like that to anticipate where they might go. That's a good tip. Now, uh, regarding, I know you brought up lines and leaders um, a couple times. How are you choosing a line and leader setup? I'm sure it's different based on the conditions and what kind of rig you're throwing, but what are some yeah. considerations for choosing a line and leader? What I'm doing with it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Simple terms. You know, with floating lines, um, this may seem a little off, but for me, um, if I had one line to fish in the lake, it would be a floating line. Okay. Um, because depending, I can... Uh, fish dry flies, of course, like we talked about. I can fish indicator systems and we can fish long leader nymphing, a, a technique we nicknamed the naked technique because there's no indicator on the leader. The leader is naked. Um, and that's long leaders, 15, 18, 20, 25 feet. And we're typically using these methods from an anchored position or you can fish downwind. We call it lock styling. We use a big underwater parachute to slow and control your drift. Allows you to cover water and always presenting your fly to fresh fish because the flies precede you as opposed to trolling you move through and then your flies follow. Um, so, you know, we're, I can reach 20 feet down easy with, with that long leader technique. It's, you know, most people, especially if you're coming from rivers and streams where a 12 foot leader may be long um, to throw 18, 20, 25 feet freaks people out a little bit. They just have these visions of spending all day on doing knots. Um, once you you know, if you follow good basic casting principles, smooth application of power, rod stop, don't let the creep, um, you know, appropriate application of power, um, you know, you're not going to tangle. You just, obviously, the longer the leader is, the more tangle prone it becomes because your margin of error is less. Um, so um, fish with those. When I'm fishing subsurface, the general rule, single fly, because when you add multiple flies, additional flies, again, if legal to do so, um, adds leader length because you need separation between them. Um, so, but the general rule with sinking lines I follow is the faster the sink rate, the shorter the leader, because you invest a lot of money in a fly line that sinks at a set rate. And you want to make sure when you're, you're using that inch per second sink rate and doing some mental math of to how long you let your fly sink to get to a zone you're trying to target, that your fly and leader is going to be somewhere right. in the vicinity. If you're fly is if your leader is ridiculously long sometimes you're and and not you know not the same you know we use a lot of predominantly level leaders um subsurface maybe a little bit of um you know typically um for people starting out with a sinking line leader i say just get a seven and a half foot tapered leader half of a tapered leader is butt section so about four and a half feet is thicker stuff and then just add tippet after that equal or similar diameter because that keeps all your flies more or less on the same plane, you know, not tungsten bead heads versus, you know, foam based flies, something like that, where there's a lot of difference in how they sink. 
Um, but um, it's just an easy system that you can add and subtract to, right? Um, so, yeah, that's sort of the – and fly lines? Well, if you come to lakes, you realize that, uh, you know, we have a lot of fly lines. I, I looked the other day. I On any given day, I probably have at least 15 fly lines with me of, of different types. They're, you know, your core lines in still water fishing are going to be your floating line for the – Again, the dries, indicators, long leader stuff. Probably a clear intermediate that sinks at about two inches per second. It's a good cast and retrieve line. You can work shallow water. Um, the slow sink rate allows you to let the fly sink to match retrieve speeds. Um, depending on the the speed the bugs go, and you know most insects, well, everything in lake doesn't have a rocket pack attached to it, so they're not zipping around at a thousand miles an hour. Any activity level of the fish, which is closely related, if the fish is sort of within that temperature window I talked about before, and they're in an active frame of mind, they're more willing to chase, you can get away with a faster sinking line because you can strip your line, your fly in faster without the risk of it hanging up. Um, whereas if they're in an inactive mode um, after that weather change or um, cool water or other factors that uh, we'll probably never know the real answer to and they're not aggressively chasing, then you got to fish slower. Um, and then you want something three to five inch per second sink rate um, somewhere in there, and those three will carry you. But then you start filling in the blanks with hover lines and midge tips and midge tip longs and and type threes and type fives and type sixes and type sevens and sweep lines and then even some lines that are not designed as I use a lot. Of, I use real lines, and they have a line called the Coastal Quick Shooter, which was designed for uh, beach fishing in uh, for sea run cutthroats in the Pacific Northwest. Um, it features a thirty four foot clear intermediate it's an integrated shooting line it casts a mile and it's just a great still water line because you can cover a lot of water it's a great line for fishing the shallows um those kind of stuff it's very versatile but again sometimes the name of the line um may mask what it you know people just oh i don't fish the coast so i'm not doing that you got to look at the line and the properties and well, wow that's very applicable to what i do why not so and competition anglers are even more paranoid than me. <laughs> um, I did a little bit of competition fishing many years ago. Um, but, uh, you know, they could have 30 fly lines with them because fly lines come and go and they'll discontinue a line, but it had some great properties to it that you that were unique to a situation. So the analogy I use with fly lines is a bit like golf. You can probably golf with a small suite of clubs, you know, and wood, a favorite iron, sand wedge, and a putter. And I'm a lousy golfer. It's I spend most of my time trying to get my balls out of water traps. Maybe that's just a sign I should be on the water. <laughs> um, and and then after a while, if you get more into the sport and you start um, buying those other clubs and then going to the driving range and learning how to use them. So our driving range is obviously the lake. And, and one of the things I, I'm a big believer in is if you're fishing and you're having a good day fishing and you're catching fish, that's the time you start playing around with new techniques you may have thought about or, to, or read about or whatever and wanted to try that's the time to try them because you'll develop confidence. You know, the fish are in a, you know, willing to play and you can hook a few fish. And then the next time you're out and the fishing's tough, you might try that method because you know it works. And then that might be the, 
the the key that unlocks the puzzle that day as opposed to trying it out when the fishing's tough and if that method doesn't work you don't know whether it was what you were doing maybe you got something wrong or it was just a fish or a combination of both right so um you know i have a lot of lines i recommend you know people say oh you i need that many and i joke and say well of course um but don't buy something unless you're going to use it you know if you're just going to buy it and put it in your kit bag and never take it out that's a complete waste of money. You need to learn how to use it, understand its properties, its application, how it performs, how it casts, um, what scenarios it would be good for, um, all that kind of stuff. It sounds like you're carrying lines the way a river angler would just carry fly boxes. Like, I, I think mm. most river-only anglers you know, have never even considered getting a second line because for the most part, I mean, a floating line is 99% of what you're using on a river. Yeah. Um, yep. So it's it's just kind of a completely different world. You know, I, I feel like a lot of people have never touched we- a different line. <laughs> We don't carry as many fly boxes. Just our fly boxes are bigger. I, <laughs> I'm now carrying two Montana Fly Company boat boxes with leafs in them. So I'm probably, those leafs hold 300 flies, depending on the configuration. I think it's 300. And I've got them stuffed and I got two boxes. So I got, you know, one of the people say, well, what, what's one of the reasons? You, if you're a hatch matcher, right, lakes are the place for you because we've got we got caddisflies, mayflies, coronamids, midges, same thing, um, dragonflies, damselflies, water boatmen, backswimmers, scuds, leeches, forage fish, crayfish, terrestrials. Um, what, did I say water boatmen and backswimmers? Uh, zooplankton. We got, if you like figuring, you know, figuring out the hatch or what they're feeding on and matching that, um, there's a lifetime of things. So we have flies that cover all of those scenarios, plus the sort of generic suggestive flies that, you know, cover the bases like a hare's ear nymph, those kind of flies, woolly bugger style, those things that can be everything and nothing. Um, we've got attractor flies that are, look like nothing a fish would eat, but we tr- we use those flies to trigger a reaction um, of aggression, curiosity, or territoriality, um, something like that, where they're not necessarily feeding. We kind of, in, you know, trigger them to grab. You know, a bass angler would call them a reaction bait. It's kind of our reaction bait. Now, I know every lake is different, so I, there's not like a, uh, a golden rule, but um, what are some of the common flies that you find in lakes that are, are generally pretty productive? Oh, the old fly question. Well, if I had to have uh, leeches, I'm a big fan of leeches. One of my favorite is a, a balanced, balanced leech, um, which is a leech we tie on a jig hook with a small pin and a tungsten bead and under an indicator that fly will hang horizontally, which is the way most things. It's also a fantastic cast and strip fly because it's a little jig. So the fly just undulates. Now we're using, you know, slotted beads and jig hooks. Um, these tungsten head turner beads or true um, teardrop uh, kind of tongue. They got lots of different names. I, I um, work closely with a, a company in Canada called Canadian Llama that brings a lot of these products in. Um, and Kent does a great job of, of <laughs> appeasing to my uh, fly tying needs and wants that may not be the rest of the world's, but um, little, um, but uh, we use those beads. So balance leeches are a big part of it. Coronamids, of course, um, huge uh, component of, of fishing. Uh, freshwater shrimp or scuds in productive lakes are a common characteristic. Um, attractor flies, um, blobs, boobies, fabs. We also use bead-headed blobs to when they get on zooplankton in the summer months or in the late fall, early fall, uh, to imitate a cluster. What else? And just generic nymphs, um, uh, that kind of stuff. You know, Denny Rickards patterns are, are great for that kind of thing. Seal buggers, still water nymphs, that kind of fly that has a lot of di- different attributes. 
Um, there's a favorite fly of mine that comes out of England called a Diawl Bach, D-I-A-W-L. It's B-A-C-H. It's actually a Welsh name. It stands for Little Devil. And it's just very sparse. You know, the original version I saw started using was just a, a few strands, a few um, red reddish brown hackle fibers for the tail, a peacock curl body with a rib, and then a little, uh, the same material used for the tail is a bead. It just looks like nothing. And it's just a great little buggy. It looks like mayfly nymphs. It looks like small scuds. It looks like a slender damselfly nymph. Um, those are two other patterns I'd have too, a damselfly nymphs and dragonfly nymphs because the dragonfly is big. So it's a bit of a confidence fly uh, because I think a lot of people get intimidated. I remember when I, when I was early in my coronamid addiction and having some experienced angler uh, veteran angler come up to me and say, you want to catch fish in lakes? And I'm like, well, duh. <laughs> and then puts this little size 14 um, standard shank hook, slender, you know, ba basically the body was the same diameter as the hook and a little bulbous thorax on it and a silver wire rib on it. And I went, you're out of your mind. I'm going to throw that tiny little fly into all that water. You know, I want to throw a big dragonfly nymph that's two inches long and a big something with some meat to it. But trout make their living eating small stuff, right? You know, you see that in rivers. The and whenever it's a hatch on, they always in, in diff, inevitably they're what are they feeding on? The smallest thing, right? You you know when you go and fish, you know I fish the Missouri a lot because it's close, you know reasonably close dry for me. You know they're, in the fall they're feeding on trichos and pseudos and these things are like 22, 24s. I can't even believe I'm throwing. You know it lands on the water. I right. Where it went. <laughs> I can't see it. I uh, just hope it drifts along drag free enough that I can you know see a rise in the area. Um, so. You'd want to have those. The reason I like the dragons and damsels is because they're predators. So predators move. They're always on the hunt. So they expose themselves, right? It's like a golden stone is a good um, river and stream pattern because they crawl around the rocks as a predator. They get swept off into the drift. It's something trout are going to see, right? And betas, nymphs, they swim. So they swim around and they get the current they can't handle and they're gone, right? And, and in rivers, you've got, you know, behavioral drift and phenomenon like that as well that also influence things in the drift so that's probably it so leeches chronomids damsels dragons some woolly bugger style flies that are kind of generic um cover the bases a prince nymph is good flashback pheasant tails hare's ears um I feel like those are good anywhere dragon nymph yeah yeah they well a hare's ear looks like a scud looks like a mayfly you know depending on how robust or slender you tie it um those kind of those kind of flies but having said that i have a you know sometimes i i joke i can't make a decision because i got so many flies to choose from that i'm kind of paralyzed you know you're waiting for one of them to speak to you put me in coach you know <laughs> and you pick one you're Give worried that it was the wrong choice and you're just thinking about whether you could have chosen something else instead oh yeah well we usually you know if i'm fishing a fly slowly um i might change it after two casts right um, but the analogy I use in lakes is a, I call it DRP, you know, because again, back to our early discussion, everybody blames the fly. It's always the fly's fault. I didn't have the right fly. They had the right fly. And, you know, if you were to ask somebody on any lake river stream, what fly are you using? Um, they may be less than truthful. I won't say lie, but they may tell you one thing and it's completely opposite. Um, they may give you some crazy name. You know, there's so many fly names out there that have nothing to do with, you know, even the word woolly bugger. What is that? Is it made out of sheep's wool? Um, you know, those kind of things. Um, so they'll guard that. But the, 
and it's not usually the fly. It's the first thing that's most important in lakes is depth. So that's what D stands for. Is my fly at the right depth? R is retrieve. Am I moving it at the right pace? And then think about fly patterns. So sometimes, you know, if somebody's being successful, you know, they're probably going to be defensive of their fly, um, perhaps, or give you a name you don't know, but you can ask them, are you, how deep are you off the bottom or are you up near this? You know, no, I'm just a foot off the bottom, especially if they're using indicator setups. Um, are you moving it fast or slow? No, I'm just letting it sit there and let the wave action bounce the indicator around. And, and from there you can sort of, if you have a basic understanding of entomology or just put something down there and move it at that pace, you're probably going to run into a fish because they're generally opportunistic on depth and selective on food. Right. Obviously, they're going to eat what's most prevalent and around them all the time. But, um, you know, a lot of times that's, you know, so and if I'm fishing in an area, you know, if nobody's around me and I don't see any signs of fish and I believe I'm fishing at the right depth and I'm moving the fly at the right pace and I've got a fly I have confidence in it, it's worked before in this scenario and not working now. If I don't see any signs of fish, I'm probably going to move because the first thing you need is fish. Step one. (laughs) Yeah. So you could move. And I don't mean an exponential move, like from the north end of the lake to the south end of the lake. It might be one or two cast lengths down the shoreline, right? If you're fishing anchored or, you know, if you're lock styling and drifting, you might make a couple of casts, nothing, and then change something up, change something up, right? Until you figure out, you know, that's the lake fishing's like a puzzle. If you like puzzles, I think you like fly fishing in general. You like that problem solving, but some days the puzzle's like a puzzle for a three-year-old. It's six pieces. It goes together. Great. Most days it's like a 50,000 word, 50,000 word, 50,000 piece puzzle of a blue sky <laughs> and you barely get the border. Done, and you don't have right? the box so to look at. <laughs> you don't have the box top either. So you just see, Jesus, a lot of blue colored pieces in this thing. What's this a picture of? And that's, that's sort of it. Some days you do really well and other days, and I actually find myself, I learn more on those tough days and the drive home and the analysis you go through as to, you know, okay. And you start thinking about it, you know, and just take the emotion out of it and the frustration and just, okay, let's think this thing through. Right. And that's where you come up with some pretty unique things to try next time that actually work. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that analysis, uh, I keep a fishing log of when I go out where mm-hmm. I, you know, I marked on the weather and, and the, if I'm on a river, I marked on the, the flow rate and stuff like that. And, um, it's actually really, really helpful to go back and I've got it digitally so I can oh, just yeah. search it and say, Hey, last time I was on, you know, fill in the blank body of water, what was it doing and what worked? And then from there, it might, yeah. might not be the exact same conditions, but I can say, okay, it's a little bit cooler so I can adjust for that or, or whatever. Well, yeah, it takes a lot of the guests, you know, you don't have to go right back to the start yeah. again, right? You've got this framework and you start to see similarities. You start to see, even though I was on Lake A and now I'm on Lake B, wow, that's the same, same time. You know, if for no other reason you keep a diary to stop arguments, right? We were there in July. <laughs> now it turns out it was September 12th. So we're both low. Um, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm a huge believer in, in keeping all those kind of notes from, like you said, the, the weather conditions, um, the wind, the water temperature. That's a big one for me. If somebody doesn't take water temperature, I'm like, Oh my God, it's like driving around with, you know, putting a bag over your head and trying to drive down a highway. <laughs> um, it's uh, uh, the hatches you see, um, fish you caught. We use um, throat pumps and we, we do throat samples of fish, right? So what food sources were, um, you know, on the menu at that time, those kind of things. What flies did you use? What presentation techniques? Uh, and just a general notes, you know, I tried this. I fished from this time to this time. We moved here. We fished there. And you just start you know, oh, 
that, 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 that there's a cross, you know, they all cross. That's, that looks like something we can apply somewhere else or in the future again, the same way. Yeah. So speaking of specific techniques, something I, I kind of want to wrap up with, um, that I think for me at least comes to mind when I think of like classic stillwater fishing that is very, very much like a unique stillwater technique is the indicator with a really long leader and a, and I think usually a midge, I'm sure you could throw on a variety of things, but, um, the chronomid on a long leader under an indicator is just a very unique stillwater yeah. setup. Um, and it's not something I have much experience with. So, um, I'd love you to just kind of walk me through, you know, you don't have to pretend. I, I am somebody who is who is very new to this technique. So walk me through, yep. like a beginner, um, how this technique is set up, uh, how you work it, and, and why it is so effective. Well, um, to answer the last question, it's so effective because it controls two of the elements I think most people coming to lakes struggle with. Getting your fly at the right depth and holding it in there. Typically in lakes, it's one to three feet off the bottom. That's where food lives. It's safe down there. Um and then your retrieve speed. And you have with an indicator, you can just let it sit and let the wave action animate animate the the indicator, which transmits down to the fly. You can strip it in a little bit. You can slowly hand twist it in. Different retrieves come in. You can let the wind move the fly for you. So it does, um, you know, and that's, again, the two things. Most time I see people on lake struggle with, they, they just cast it out there. As soon as the fly hits, they're ripping it in. Right. I often joke up uh, your diehard river and stream streamer fishermen, you know, fishing, you know, articulated what's nuts and everything. Um, <laughs> they're hard. I almost have to medicate them to slow <laughs> down. You know, when you you know, when you're casting out and you're going to let a fly sink for at least 30 seconds, that's agony to some people. That's like line up at Starbucks or, you know, in an in a bank instant teller line up at a bank and you can't get your cash out quick enough because there's people in there doing their bills and everything else you know you've not heard of online banking um those kind of things um but your basic indicator setup it you know we use a lot of long rods in lakes um nine and a half um i use rods by mystic that are the m series it's 10 foot three inches long so one of the benefits of a long rod is roll casting because that's a cast i'm a big advocate of for indicator presentations because we're not making distance casts. In fact, you've got to see that indicator um, to see a take and react to it. And my general rule is the deeper I'm fishing below my indicator, the closer I keep it. So I remember fishing Crowley Lake in California where you routinely are fishing, you know, when I was there, we were routinely fishing 17 to 19 feet below an indicator. Uh, we barely had a rod length of line out because if a fish takes that fly, as soon as it puts the fly in its mouth, it's going to realize not what it thought it was. And I really believe a lot of your indicator takes are right in the roof of the mouth. And I believe that's because they come up, they put their mouth on the fly and they realize, uh Oh, not that. And they're actually in the process of spitting that fly out when it registers as a take. And of course you set the hook and pull the fly up into the mouth. And that's where you get the, why you get the hook up there. So um, you want to keep it close. Um, as I mentioned with that, um, indicate the leader system we use, and I'll get to that in a second. It's tangle prone. It's thin. It's predominantly level. Um, it's tangle prone. If you got multiple flies on there, those kind of things, all those different points of contact with weight, just you know, that's what helps screw casts up and tangles. So you don't want to be casting that long distances um, because of the more times it's in the air, the more time it's going to tangle. So that roll cast comes into play. Your fly line plays a role. Any floating line will do, but most floating lines for trout are designed for casting dry fly. So they have a long front taper for allowing, you know, 
gentle dissipation of casting energy, no big splat on the surface, a loud presentation. In lakes, we need a line. Um, so I worked with Rio to help develop their Stillwater floater line because we wanted a line that had the horsepower, the mass, the short aggressive front taper, oversized head, uh, a long back taper for roll casting, um, to be able to turn over an indicator rig or turn over a long leader, right? The lines, you know, to turn over weight or length, you need mass to do that. And that line's designed for that. And then the leader setup itself, um, I use, again, Real makes a, line, an in, a leader called the indicator leader. Um, it's 10 feet long out of the package. It, is, it says tapered on there, but the taper is only about three feet. So I keep right where that transition point is from the butt section to the level portion, the seven foot level leader is where I put my indicator. Cause with casting indicators, you like to keep your indicator about three feet from the end of your fly line. You never want to have that indicator creep way out 10, 12 feet away. It just, everything's out of whack. You end up overpowering the cast and just bad things start, you know, tangles start to happen. Um, so what you get with that butt section between the indicator and the fly line is a little bit of backbone to the leader because the rest of the leader's level, thin, level leader, you know, eight pound or less, typically breaking strength, um, you know, 3X, 2X. Um, and then um, you've got that loop-to-loop -loop connection if you use that. And because it's thicker diameter, it's not going to cut into the fly line coating. I know some um, of my friends, they use level leaders, eight pound test the entire length. And the trouble is if you knot that, you use a loop-to-loop -loop connection, that thin diameter stuff can cut into the coating and, and damage an expensive fly line nowadays. And also because it's nylon, it's going to sit more on the surface, whereas a fluorocarbon level leader is going to get under the surface. And if the fish are taken softly, you got to sort of rip that out of the water first as part of the hook set process. It may cost you a, a fish. So that leader I said is 10 feet, seven feet's tapered. Okay, that's great if I'm going to fish seven feet down, but that's not always going to happen. Um, so we have to add equal or maybe one size less diameter tippet material to the end of that leader. So to summarize all this as far as leader, let's say, just an example, I'm going to want to fish 16 feet below my indicator. So I have a 10-foot leader of which 7-foot is level. Remember, I want to have level leader from my indicator to my fly. I'm trying to keep this, again, this is the most complex system I have. So, um, so I've only got 7 feet. So I need to... Uh, obviously add some tippet length to get down to 16. Now my final tippet section, I always like it to be about 24 inches, two feet long of fluorocarbon for uh, abrasion resistance, all the stuff people use fluorocarbon for. Um, I like that two feet and I've got seven feet a liter. So if I take seven feet of that level leader on the indicator leader and two feet, you add that together as nine. So I take nine and I always subtract that from the depth of water I'm trying to target. So nine less 15 is six. That's how much leader I have to add between the end of the indicator leader and my final tippet section. And typically we use a small barrel swivel to connect that, like a 12, 14, or 16, because it adds weight, it spins and rotates. Um, the releasing indicators we use, they, the leaders passes through them. So if you break a fish off, that's going to trip the indicator and without any kind of stopper in the way, it's going to slide right off the leader and you're going to lose it. So the swivel acts as a stopper, other benefits um, there as well. So my overall leader in that 16 foot scenario would be a 10 foot indicator leader, six feet, let's say it's a two X leader. So I'll have maybe six feet of two X or three X 
um, fluorocarbon, and then the swivel, and then the final two feet. And I call that midsection of the leader the adjustment zone. So this is where I ebb and flow the leader length. So if I want to go deeper, I'm going to add to it. If I'm going to fish shallower, I'm going to cut it back, cut it out, whatever it takes, because you only want to fish a leader long enough as necessary. You don't need to fish 20 feet a leader to fish seven feet of water, right? It's just, you're asking for trouble. You're going to have your indicator too far away from your fly line. It's just going to be a disaster, right? So I know that I'm trying to make that simple. So in summary, and the reason being is when that line hits, everything lands in the water, that leader is going to sink straight down below the indicator. And you're going to, your flies are going to reach the depth you're set at. If you use a nine or a 12 foot trout leader, again, designed for fishing to surface feeding trout, 50% of that leader's butt section is thick. And then it tapers down in the final tippet section. So if you use that as the foundation of your leader, even though you're set at, you know, for 16 feet, you may not reach it because you've got three or four feet still of that thick butt section that's going to sink slowly. And you're going to get that leader to, it sinks more of an arc or a droop than straight down. And it's, it's, you're not going to fish the depth. You're going to think you are, but you're not fishing the depth that you need to fish because your leader won't let you. Now, this might be a uh, kind of a dumb newbie question, but um, so I know obviously this, this level leaders, the, the goal is to get it to go straight down. Do you ever add any weight yes. to, to really enhance that straight down pull? Some, sometimes there's a number of ways, you, you know, in windy conditions, you need more weight because wind will create um, current wind-induced current. And of course, then it starts to behave a little bit like a river. It starts pushing things horizontally and they can't get down. Um, so a swivel does that. Um, you can step your swivel size up. So, uh, you know, I most times I'm fishing about a 14, but you could fish up to a 12. You could put a split shot above the swivel, a little bit of tungsten putty. Um, you could use a tungsten fly. I tend to use brass bead flies when I'm coronamid fishing. If I'm fishing other flies, I might be tungsten um, because a coronamid is a pretty slender bug. It sinks quickly and indicators are not the only way I fish coronamids. I use a lot of other techniques as well. And, and in the other techniques, the fly simply sinks too fast and gets into the muck. Um, you can add a second fly or a third fly um, if you're a real gambler um, <laughs> as far as tangles. And that adds weight too, right? So there are situations where you do add weight um, particularly when the wind comes up, that's when you, you know, you only add what you need to add. Don't slap all that weight on unnecessarily. Um, so it's, it could be a scenario early more, you know, in the morning, the wind, the daily winds haven't come up, you're fishing no swivel. And then the winds come up a bit, you put a swivel on and then the winds come up more, stick a split shot, maybe put a tungsten based fly on you. You kind of have to, cause what'll happen is you can, you'll be catching fish. You're seeing signs. Fish are still around. You've got bugs hatching. The hatches beauty of coronamids is they tend to hatch prolonged periods throughout the season and all day. Um, so those fish will just, and because they're small and they process them, you know, then about 12 hours are all digested and they're on the feed again. So it's a great, just this constant feeding cycle going on. Um, you know, and they hatch in the hundreds of thousands of bugs at a time There's over 2,500 species in Western North America long coronamids outnumber all the other bugs in the lake combined, right? They're just a massively important food source. Um, so, you know, you can be, and all of a sudden you start not catching as many fish, but the wind has come up. So you adjust, you know, a little bit of weight on, and all of a sudden you're back in the game again, because your flies aren't getting blown. Cause just like nymphing on a river with an indicator, too much current. And all of a sudden everything's moving more 
horizontally. You're not getting that straight down angle anymore. So it's just adapting to the conditions, you know, as yep. you would with any any yep. technique, really, I guess. Yeah, because you're like, okay, I'm catching fish and I'm not catching fish. Why? Right. Start doing the you know the an the analysis to figure out, right? It's not all of a sudden they've just said, you know what? I've had and some days, yeah, it might be, okay, you've stuck me enough. I'm good. I'm gone. <laughs> you've had your fun. It's time to go home, right? I always joke at the end of the day, sometimes it slows down a little bit. And it's almost like, okay, the fish has said they played enough. They want us to go now. <laughs> they need some recovery time. Yeah, at some point you feel like you've you've uh, taken what you what you deserved and it's it's time to yeah. leave the yeah. leave the resource alone now you're getting right. greedy right <laughs> well phil we can get wrapped up i know i uh you have a new book out sure. so i wanted to give you a chance to plug that um i wrote down the name the uh, orvis guide to stillwater trout fishing um so feel free yes. to to plug however you see fit um you know what's in it what do you cover and where can people find it just buy it just buy it no uh it is sort of the compilation of 35 plus years of stillwater fishing from lessons I've learned, lessons people have graciously passed along to me. It's a heavy book. It weighs about two pounds. It's over 110,000 words and close to 300 images and diagrams. Um, it covers a lot of what we talked about. For example, that indicator formula we just struggled <laughs> through. Um, there's a diagram Perfect. there that explains Perfect. it all. The the floating line chapter I did for fishing subsurface. So just indicators and a naked technique was about 7,000 words I wrote on that. So I went into depth. I went off the deep end. There's entomology in there, floating line techniques, dry fly fishing techniques, sinking lines, equipment, uh, both rods and reels and all the other accessories, lines, um, a little bit of introduction into lock style, uh, fishing from that drifting boat I mentioned, um, attractor fishing, a big entomology chapter. Again, Rick Hayfley, because that's such a big part of why you'd want to fish lakes, watercraft, you know, boats, pontoon boats, float tubes, how to anchor a boat. Um, you know, it's just not lob it over the side and hope for the best. There's an actual art to it. All those kind of things are in there. So it, it's sort of all of the presentations I've done. It shows all that stuff in, in one stop. And, you know, you can get it in many uh, places. Um, myself and good friend Brian Chan, another fellow Stillwater addict, um, we have our own online Stillwater fly fishing store called the Stillwater Fly Fishing Store.com. Um, and that store came about because a lot of the unique stuff we use in lakes, it's not easily found. And um, so we just decided one day we're going to try and help um, Stillwater anglers worldwide find the stuff they need. Um, all the little we do our indicators there, bobber stops, depth locators, swivels, leaders all of our signature flies at Montana fly ties on our behalf, our books, our DVDs, everything. It's a one-stop Stillwater shop. Maybe we should have called it that. So we're always adding to that as well. So that's where you can get it. And the good thing is, is the prices are in Canadian dollars. So uh, for my American <laughs> friends, that's, uh, you know, 20% off just by oh, built-in <laughs> discount, <laughs> depending on the exchange rate. So yeah, we ship our products all over the world. So that's the best. And all of our books and, you know, Brian's books are there as well. Um, they're all autographed as well. So well, that sounds like a, a great resource. Um, I hate to, th I, I don't want to throw shade at, um, you know, just general fly fishing books, but without, without a little bit of a base knowledge of how to fly fish, it's, it's pretty difficult to learn how to fly fish from a book. But I feel like once you have a grasp on how fly fishing works, something like this, where you can see diagrams of, like you said, leader setups and stuff yeah. like that. Um, suddenly that becomes, I feel like really valuable, um, to see it. It's a reference point. You can go out and come back and refer to it because, Unlike today, I kind of envy today's anglers because when I learned to fly fish, books were all we had. Right. Um, you know, and if you were fortunate enough to get mentored by somebody who knew more than you did 
or become involved in a club. And now you can go to YouTube and Google and, and all these, you know, and, and there's so many schools and seminars and workshops and fly fishing shows you can go to, you know, that's, you know, I, I really enjoy speaking at those as well because you can have that interaction and that discussion. Well, okay. Explain what you mean and come back at me again and show me and, you know, it's, it's a lot more visual and tactile than it was before. We would just go to a library and look, you know, when I started tying books had diagrams in them, they didn't have pictures. Right. And then there was black and white pictures, which were just slightly better than <laughs> diagrams because of the contrast issues. And then full color was holy smokes. And now YouTube and you can just how to do this. And somebody's done a, a you know, a, a video on it. And I'm even now doing online learning, you know, online courses because, um, you know, with the with the pandemic, it's sort of that it was a concept I had in my mind for 25 years ago, but there's the technology wasn't there. And now with programs like Zoom and StreamYard and all these things, you can somebody can take a course. And, and you know, I, I just look at what the frustrations I went through to learn and, this, you know, the constantly running into walls and, and all that kind of stuff. It's sure nice to be able to to take that learning curve off so you can enjoy the fishing and not get frustrated because uh, you know i love watching other people have the same amount of success i'm fortunate enough to have oh absolutely well where can where can people find you if they want to reach out if they want to follow you on social media or uh watch i know you said you have got youtube videos um where's the best place for yep. people to find your content um i mentioned the stillwater store i've got my own website at the time of recording is called flycraftangling.com but really soon will become philrolyflyfishing.com um, Flycraft was a sort of a parent company I set up and nobody really knows what the heck that is, but they know who I am. So somebody said, why are you calling it that? So things you learn about self-promotion as <laughs> right. you know, with a podcast, what you got, <laughs> um, um, the store, um, I've got my own YouTube channel. I've got an active YouTube channel with, uh, instructional fly fishing content, uh, vlogs and a lot of fly tying on there. Um, so yeah, please go pay it a visit, subscribe, like all the things you make the algorithm happy you can find my two primary social platforms are instagram and facebook so phil roley fly fishing on facebook and phil roley fly fishing on instagram um stay pretty active uh, doing things and i'm at shows all you know i i'm on the tour with the fly fishing show so i'm usually all over uh united states this year the season's just wound up i was in boston um, was going to New Jersey, but did because of the pandemic, but did the, uh, my shows via zoom there. Um, I was in Salt Lake city at the Wasatch expo. I was at the Pleasanton fly fishing show, the Denver fly fishing show. So I get around. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be passing through at some point, yeah. I'm sure for most people. Well, Phil, this has been, um, just an absolute wealth of information and, uh, maybe you've inspired me to try some new techniques. I, I tend to stick to dry flies when I go to lakes because, uh, it, it tends to work fairly well for the lakes I go to, but I think I need mm -hmm. to, uh, expand my horizons. Uh, you know, cause there, there's definitely days I show up that it's not working and I need to, to expand it a little bit there. Well, you're, you're in the, you're in Colorado, right? Yeah. Outside in the Denver. Denver area or? Yeah, well, I will be down there in August. Um, myself and Landon Mayer, you've probably heard of him. I have. Uh, being, is it a Coloradian? Color Colorado. Colorado. Um, we are getting together and we're doing a bit of a fly shop tour uh, focused on still waters. And, of course, I'll be exploring um, during the day. I said to Landon, yes, I'll come down and do this, but we better be doing some fishing. Um, so I'm coming down the first week in August, um, 6th, 7th or 8th or something like that through then. Um, so, you know, keep an eye out. Uh, we'll be um, doing it a number of the shops 
in, in the greater Denver area doing these uh, sort of evening in stores for a couple of hours or so. So a great place to, you know, if you want to come talk still waters, we'll be doing a combination of fly tying and the rigging and all that kind of stuff. Okay, now you tied this fly or showed me this fly. How the heck do you use it kind of thing? So that's what it'll be all about too. So I'll be in your neighborhood. So neighborhood. So you'll have to drop by and say hi. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll, uh, I'll definitely check out the dates. And if I don't find them, I'll reach out to you. Um, do you happen to know yep. if you're coming to the Golden Fly Shop? I am. Okay, well, that's right I down am. the road Hold for on. me. Let, me. let me just, it's on my, Landon, text me the agenda. So just bear with me. I'll look, look up the te- oh, face ID. Okay. Um Hold on. By the time you unlock the iPhone, you forgot what you're doing. Um, these are the shops I believe we've got set up. So I just have to scroll through. I know we're going to the Golden Fly Shop. Um, I believe that's on the Sunday. Um, just let me bring up my calendar here. Um, oh, I actually have them up there. So on the Saturday, the 6th, I believe we're at Angler's Covey on the, um, the 7th of August. We're at the Golden Fly Shop. Um, on the Monday, the 8th, we're at Trout's and on Tuesday, the, um, 9th, we're at the Peak Fly Shop. Perfect. Well, I so will, there... I'll, uh, I know this is just kind of us, um, you know, figuring out logistics here, but I, I'll leave this in cause I'm sure a decent portion of my listenership is probably in the greater Denver area. So, yep. um, in case anyone else wants to come and attend those, um, I'll definitely yep. mark my calendar for August 7th. If I don't have anything going on, I'll head over to the Golden Fly Shop. It's right down the road. Um, yep. that's my, that's my go-to. So I'll see if I yep. can. No, we're going there. there. I talked to, to Justin J nine. So, uh, spoke to him about that and, uh, looking forward to it. Cause now Justin's involved with Montana fly too. <laughs> so that's, it's all good. <laughs> cool. Well, I, I hope to see you then. That'd be, that'd be great to uh, see you in person and, um, say hi, but, uh, once again, thank you so much for this. It's been, it's been really, uh, informative and I just really appreciate you taking all the time. Oh, I'd love to do it. You, uh, Usually you can't get me to shut up is the problem. (laughs) That's the best kind of guest. Don't worry. (laughs) All right. Have a good night, Phil. You too. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, Don't forget to head over to the website, fishuntamed.com, for all episodes and show notes. And also, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. That'll get my episodes delivered straight to your phone. And also, if you have not yet, please consider going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review. That's very helpful for me, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, Other than that, thank you guys again for listening, and I will be back in two weeks. Bye, everybody.